Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As a little girl, so the family story goes, chef, baker, and restaurateur Reema Seal liked to go her own way. When her mother admonished Reem to grab a hold of her as they walked across the street, Reem would declare, I'll hold my own hand. That independence and courage is a hallmark of Reema Seal's career as a baker and chef. Her new cookbook, Arabia, is beautiful and startling, challenging even. These are not words we normally use about cookbooks, but Reem has an organizer's heart and an activist's mind. Food is her intellectual medium now, but if you open this book expecting solely to find a hummus recipe, you are in for something else entirely. We've got Reem of Reem's California for the hour. Stay tuned. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The heart of Rima Seal's new book slash cookbook is bread. Simple ingredients, transformed by yeast, worked by hands, baked for all. She writes in Arabia recipes from the life of an Arab in diaspora. Bread is neither rich nor poor food. It is the common denominator that connects us all. Now she makes bread out of her Arab corner bakery right next to Casa Guadalupe on 25th and Mission in San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining us, Reem. This is such a beautiful book on many different levels. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, it's like music to my ears to hear people say my words. So, <laughs> Well, we're going to say a lot to them because there's a lot of really good yeah. ones in the book. <laughs> um, but Reem, I want to start really simply here with bread. What is it about bread that you love? Oh, so many things. I mean, I think that ever, I mean, and I say this in the cookbook, it was the first thing that my parents gave me to gnaw my teeth on. So I have very vivid memories of it. But I think the, the thing about bread is it's so transcendent. I mean, everybody has a memory of bread. It transcends all cultures. And it's hard to explain. It's like that, um you know, feeling that you get when you smell it, when you taste it, um, the memory that is associated with it. But I think for me and why I became obsessed with bread was to learn that it is the lifeline of my people. I mean, ever since (laughs) the start, um, I mean, Egyptians created bread and I became obsessed with sort of learning the lineage of my people through this magical Mm. food. You really presented in the book, too, yeah, both this. It's kind of a bridge from the past and the previous generations, your ancestors that you draw strength from, 
as well as kind of the the newer science that we now have available about like what yeast are doing. How did you try to combine those two really different ways of knowing? Well, um, I always joke that, I mean, my mom's a chemist. (laughs) She... That's helpful. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's funny because I um, I always had an affinity for alchemy. Like, I think the idea of being an alchemist or mm. creating magic. I mean, it really is, right? Bread is a living thing. And you're taking all these components and putting them together. And the result is something entirely different. And um, I, so just the idea of becoming an alchemist... Um, was just really intriguing to me. So mm. I feel like the science of that and that every time that you approach bread, you're going to get a different result. And there's mm. something really magical about that. Um, and that, you know, for the, it, for the, <laughs> excuse me if I sound cliche, but like it's a living thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's a living dynamic thing. <laughs> I remember the it's first very time I parallel heard to my life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, parallel to your life. How so? Yeah. I mean, yeah. just that, you know, we're always evolving and time uh, and ingredients and all these things in our life dictate sort of or um, determine uh, the path we take. So I kind of like to think about sort of my life parallel to, to bread and all living things, right, yeah. that we're creating. I remember the first time I heard a sourdough starter, you know, this thing that uh, gets put in, mixed in with flour and the other ingredients in bread and, and sort of takes off, sets the chemistry off. And I just was like, wait, it's sort of talking to me because it is, in fact, alive. That's its, it is. That's what it's doing. So you, this is also, bread's also how you got your start, really, as a professional, right? Yes. Like this was the first product that you sort of made and, and sold to people. What was the kind of bread that you were making, and, and where was it? Like, what was the scene for those the early bread-making days? Well, funny enough, uh, I mean, I wanted to be a baker, um, but uh, a lot of the opportunities was not were not in bread. It was in sort of sweets, pastry, and so I, um, I think my formative part of my career was when I worked at Arizmendi Bakery mm. and Pizzeria, and I was really attracted to that because... You know, obviously, pizza um, and the California styles and sourdough. And truth be told, I wasn't a fan of sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, like, Give me Wonder Bread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I grew up on. But I, um, but I think in sort of being there and you know, um, learning about the intricacies of it, realizing that not not all sourdough is alike, right? That there's just so many variations and there's something really cool about that. Um, I became obsessed with learning how, how to make pizza. Um, and if you think about it, you know, Arab bread or flatbread or any sort of, uh, any of the breads <laughs> from the ancient times is essentially like the precursor to pizza. Um, so it was a perfect sort of vessel to uh, or vehicle to experiment. And I was really lucky in that I worked at a worker co-op in which we had some of that freedom. I think that the first pizza that I created still exists on the Emeryville Erezmendi menu. Um, it was a Zatar pizza. Uh. And at that time, uh, you know, Zatar wasn't the in, the in thing yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, yeah, tell, tell, for people who don't know what it is, tell us what za'atar is. Yeah, so za'atar is a spice mix. It's often it's the Arabic word for the plant that is the the main um, plant, which is a wild thyme or oregano, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> um, uh, sumac berry um, and sesame seeds. That's the traditional trifecta of um, ingredients in it, and it's traditionally um, mixed with a really good olive oil and uh, slathered onto breads um, and is what makes up uh, our signature product at Reams California called the Manushe. And it's just a magical herb. It's a magical spice mix, and it goes well with everything. <laughs> yeah, but I remember sort of playing around with that when I was at Arizmendi, and, uh, you know, brings me back to my, you know, Kid, when I was a kid, my mom would make sandwiches with za'atar in it, and it's not the prettiest looking thing. Um, so there was some fear that it wouldn't sell, and then it became one of our best sellers. You know, so I, I started my R and D long before I started Reams. Yeah, and you went from working in Arizmendi, and there were other things. You're also working as community organizer and, and doing things like that. But you went to a food incubator called La Cocina, and I was wondering if you could talk about what it was like to work in that place, which does a lot of work with immigrant women who are starting food businesses. Because I feel like, you know, when, you, when your book references diaspora, it's kind of calling not just the Arab diaspora, but kind of Mm-mm. all these yeah. other diasporic peoples to the table. Correct. I'm glad you got that. Um, yeah, I think that working at La Cocina uh, was one of the most transformative times in my life. It really opened my eyes to a much... Uh, wider scope of what it is that I was meant to do. Um, in a way, La Cucina slowed me down. Um, I, I had sort of tunnel vision on this bakery that I really wanted to start, and it was all, you know, it was it was going to be about this bread, but it's about so much more than bread. And when I got into that kitchen, just working side by side with women from all different uh, walks of life from all corners of the world. And um, all of us were making our own product, but there were so many similarities in the methodology that, for instance, someone from um, Gujarat was making their um, their flatbread, right? It would be very similar to the way that we made our saj bread, which is our thin flatbread, and then come to realize that, you know, our cultures intersected at one point. Um, Watching women uh, make tortillas straight by the hand, and and they would come and watch me and how I was stretching my bread, and it was essentially the same way. So, just seeing the commonalities, um, mm. but then also seeing their the struggles that they went through um, to be where they are and how they're sustaining their whole communities. It was a very humbling experience to say the least, and I think. If it wasn't for La Cucina, I think that I wouldn't be here today, honestly. I tried to quit so many times. <laughs> I was like, this this food business thing is, I don't know if I'm cut out for it. And they just kept throwing resources my way. And I, and I think that that is a common story for so many small business owners that are just trying to make their way. There are just so many barriers to success. And um, I think that being part of community, being part... Uh, being interconnected in both our successes but also our struggles really helped me get through that hard time of getting over the first hump 
of starting my small business. So, yeah. As we go into the break, I just kind of want you to describe Manushe, the bread that yes. is sort of the key product. Just what what is it like? How is it shaped? Just in in brief. Yes, Manushe is a magical. Uh, I mean, I don't like to call it an Arab pizza. That's what people call it, but it's just this like. Fresh, hot baked, uh, slightly leavened flatbread that's can be topped with anything and everything. The most popular uh, topping is the zaatar, and it's traditionally uh, finished off with, you know, fresh vegetables. So you got this like hot bread with the spice, and then you wrap it with fresh vegetables, and you can eat it on the go. You can roll it. It's kind of like a pizza meets a, a burrito. <laughs> um, and, but you can also slice it up and share it. Uh, you can. It's really versatile street food, and it is the quintessential street food of um, my where my family is from in Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. And you got to go and actually watch a bunch of different bakers make this bread, right? I kind of, in the book, you kind of get this montage image of you just standing next to bakers all across the Levant. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. It's There's so many different um, variations of it. You can make it in an oven. You can make it on a griddle. You can make it on um, a saj, which is the traditional dome that, um, it's a domed griddle, almost like a domed komal if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, stretch it on a pillow and slap it. And that was actually the aha moment, p- epiphany moment for me as I was getting my start, which is that I couldn't afford a nice wood-fired oven to make it. So we had custom-made sages straight from the villages of Lebanon um, to to get my start in farmer's markets making wow. this manusha. And as soon as that dough hits the sage... Uh, it just starts to like bubble up and then you throw the za'atar on and all you can smell is the za'atar. So it was kind of like moths to a flame. <laughs> um, yeah. Mrs. Fields cookies, as you yes, say. Yes, exactly. Book, right? I but... wanted to have a fan that just like would fan out the smell. <laughs> We're talking with Reem Asil about her new cookbook, Arabia, and her restaurants in the Bay Area. And we'd love to hear from you. We'll give the call out when we get back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm talking with Rima Seal about her new book, Arabia, and her restaurants in the Bay Area, her path to being a restaurateur. If you're an immigrant to the U.S. or even just new to California, what's a food that you long for from back home? Or, you know, 
We know people love Reams, so if you have a favorite food from Reams, you want to call up and describe it, talk with Reem about it, that's okay, too. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Uh, so, Reem, you write in this book, I love this, it's not in my nature to scrub my house for you and lavish you with sweets until you drag yourself away, a hand in the air, bursting at the seams. That person was my grandmother. Can you tell us about her? Oh, my grandmother, she was a tenacious one. Um, she was born uh, in Yaffa, Yaffa in Arabic, Jaffa, um, which is... Uh, what was Palestine in 1948 uh, before the takeover and um, got, uh, you know, expelled uh, and uh, displaced to Gaza where she met my grandfather in 1967. And um, she was really the matriarch of her family. My mom comes from a family of six kids and my grandmother was the one who took care of house. Uh, my grandfather was the entrepreneur hustler and, um, she was, and she made sure that he could survive, uh, by taking care of, you know, uh, six kids in what was a very tumultuous time. Um, they, uh, were then again expelled in 67 from Gaza and relocated to Beirut, um, where she, just found a way to build community. And every time they moved, she would build a community around her. And it was through her cooking and her food. Um, and when they moved to California after my parents immigrated here, um, her home in uh, Northridge, California, became the sort of spot that everybody would come to. All of us were in different corners of the world, but every summer we would go to her home and yeah, I mean, obviously, going through civil war and going through being expelled from your um, homeland multiple times uh, can create trauma for anyone. But my grandmother just held her head up high all the time, um, really until the day she passed um, and, and making sure that, you know, she and the people around her lived in dignity and joy. And she created that. And she took it upon herself as a virtue, you know, like as a responsibility. And I feel like uh, I like to say that I channel my grandmother in me, the, this sort of sense of responsibility to take care of people. She really had that and lived by it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, for your grandmother, I wanted you to describe one of the foods that you associate with her in the book, which is she had a friend who made a kind of cake called foof. I may have said that. Foof, yes. Foof. I, lo- I yeah. love that. I wrote- <laughs> it's written all over these notes because I yes. like that um, word so much. Yeah. Talk, talk about that particular recipe. Yeah. Um, that recipe really is emblematic of my grandmother uh, taking a delicacy from a new place and adding her own twist to things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tea cake from... Um, the mountains in Lebanon, you see it uh, a lot. And it's actually traditionally made with olive oil. So it's a dairy-free um, cake. Uh, in, in my book, we make it with buttermilk and uh, orange uh, for a pop of 
color and that California pastry, <laughs> um, you know, uh, training that I had. But my um, she learned it from um, her best friend, Ruji. And if I could just give a shout out to Ruji, she was like a, an auntie to us, too. She is very much like my grandmother and the spirit of my grandmother. She um, actually was a refugee from Hungary who landed in Palestine and then yet again got displaced mm. uh, to Lebanon in 1948. And um, my grandmother and her found their way to each other. And uh, she really made sure that my grandmother, um, you know, felt safe and connected. She even, you know, uh, she would go to bat for her, you know, when the militia would come to her home because um, Ruji uh, was not Muslim um, and they at that time Muslims were um, not, uh, you know, with the civil war they were the majority, but the minority Christian militia um, didn't mm-hmm. did not <laughs> treat them well. So she would go to bat for her, um, but they lived this sort of joyful life together, and uh, she was the one who taught her this recipe, and uh, and I just really love the story of that because it's you know how you can just learn from different cultures and adapt and make it your own. And um, they're one of the many happy stories that I have of their friendship um, when my grandmother could share those memories. It's one of the few memories that my grandmother had. Uh, She came down with um, dementia as she got older. Mm. So um, Ruji played a very, very big role in her life. That's beautiful beautiful story of the of the yeah. recipe as one one among many in this uh, cookbook. I wanted to welcome in Jean from Marin who wants to share a food she longs for. Welcome, Jean. Hi. Can you hear me? Sure can. Go ahead. Great. Um, so I live in California now, but I grew up in Wisconsin. And they, since you're talking about bread, um, mm-hmm. we, they had rye rolls. They were like little about the size of few small buns that they would put sea salt on and we eat them with chili and i cannot find them anywhere <laughs> in the Bay Area. i don't know if there's somebody out there who knows where i mean i've seen anna you know, rye bread like anna's rye bread but that's just a food but that rye rolls. rye rolls rye rolls sea salt yeah I love it. Any ideas on where to find that, Reem? I, I, don't I know. feel like Arismendi might be your best bet there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have these thing. We had these things called. Um, uh, well, they were cheese rolls, but it was our multi-grain sourdough, mm-hmm. um, which definitely had the rye. Um, true, uh, true story. We actually put rye in our bread. Uh, it's like part of our base starter and you'll see that in the cookbook but that's our sort of little homage to to california bread making um but yeah i think arismendi might be one but yeah i haven't yeah yeah these like pumpernickel they were very dark yes really dark rock well, thank thank you so much for that call, Gene. That's a great uh, that's a great memory for me. I'm always chasing this pretzel nut I had in oh, uh, yes. Brooklyn one time. You know, with this amazing little sandwich, but I've never gotten one that's the same. Um, you say in this book, and you kind of reference it with your grandmother. I think you know. You say this book is an homage to Arab hospitality. What do, what do you mean by that? Uh, Arab hospitality is the way. <laughs> I am the missionary for Arab hospitality. Um, yeah, I think that 
one of the things, so um, for folks who don't know my story, you know, the whole premise of Reams California, my restaurant, um, was really on this trip that I took in 2010 um, where I visited these street corner bakeries and multiple food spaces uh, as sort of a burnt out uh, nonprofit organizer, uh, really trying to find what it is that is my purpose because I just felt like I was hitting a wall and um, doing the transformative work I wanted to do in communities uh, back in 2010. And so I went on this trip, really, I didn't have expectations, but in that trip, I really had this sort of epiphany moment about the role of food spaces, not just food, but like the spaces that are created around food um, that create resilience in communities. Mm -hmm. And I was just, it was the first time I felt alive and a sense of belonging in, the, uh, in a long time. And I was like, ah, that is what Oakland needs. That is what the communities that I've been trying to organize need. They need a space to be as they are, to imagine what a world could look like uh, where people feel connected and safe um, and can be their authentic selves. And so I started to just explore what was it that, what is the magic of that? And I realized that it was really this Arab hospitality in which uh, Arabs, you know, really express through their food ways. Um, and it then, in doing my research over and over again, I realized, oh, this is actually a story of their survival. Um, you know, we come from, uh, you know, we were a nomadic people surviving many generations in the desert and you have to invite your, you know, strangers into your home, <laughs> mm -hmm. enemies and, and friends, right, um, in order to survive. Uh, and it became sort of uh, not just a virtue but um, uh, indicative. And I was like, that makes sense, right? Our survival as, a human as humanity is really predicated on our capacity to love and take care of one another. And so I came back to the Bay Area to really try to embody that. And also the reality that um, the images reflected back to me on my, of myself as an Arab for as long as I can remember were not of this love and warmth and hospitality that the American public really had um, only seen this sort of homogenized version of Arab and we're either the terrorist or the refugee, and we're nothing in between, and we're not these human people who love and take care. And I really wanted to challenge uh, those stereotypes. So I felt like creating this bakery, this magic bakery that really channeled the Arab hospitality um, would do both things, would mm -hmm. sort of create this community building space for my community through this gift of Arab hospitality, but also um, really challenge people's notions of who Arabs are and what um, you know, what we experienced. So. Well, you know, you also had a talk with Soleho at the Chronicle. I think Justin uh, was there as well. And there's this moment where you describe what you want Reams to be. I'm just going to read it back to you. Um, said, I didn't open Reams to have a restaurant, in all honesty. I kind of fell into being a restaurateur. So I didn't even actually know what the traditional definition of a restaurant is until I got mm -hmm. into this world. <laughs> so my vision of Reams is always to be sort of, quote unquote, the space this transformative space, and not really for the consumer, but for all the ecosystems around it. 
person who walks in our door, but also our workers, our vendors, also the neighborhood in the area, all the things. Is that part of your definition of Arab hospitality, too, that it wouldn't just extend to the people who are paying customers, but to that whole ecosystem? Correct. Yeah, it's the sum of all of those parts that make it um, so transformative. I think that um, Arabs are a communal people. Um, we never see ourselves in sort of isolation. So uh, I think that well, that's been hard to achieve in the U.S. I think that there is a lot of, of that individualist culture, but I think the pandemic changed things for a lot of people. And I I hope that we were moving towards a culture of more cooper- <laughs> cooperation and collaboration because that's what it's going to take um, to to really build that resilience that I talk about when I was talking to Soleil. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to some of those things yeah. as well. Let's bring in Bianca from uh, Pengrove. Welcome. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so first, I, I really want to give a huge shout out to La Cocina. Um, I work in the nonprofit space in the Bay Area, helping um, small business owners of color and women business owners um, get their start. And La Cocina is just such an incredible resource. So thank you for mm-hmm. um, shouting them out. Um, I did want to flag, so literally last, last weekend, my friend made for me a dish called Shakshuka. And it was, like, so simple and one of the best dishes I feel like I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sent it to my mom in Minnesota being like, you should make this dish. It's so good. But she doesn't like tomato-based recipes. Shakshuka might be tough like- for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering if you might share a little bit about shakshuka in any way that any fun ways that people can make the recipe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Eggs in purgatory, the good, <laughs> good old fashioned poached egg. Um, yeah. I have a, uh, recipe for shakshuka in the book where I, I also like, I don't like it to be straight tomato. So we do a sort of mix of, uh, tomato and red pepper to sort of sweeten it up. So it doesn't have that overly acidic, Flavor, so that might be a way. Uh, if she wants to steer clear of uh, tomatoes, there is something called green shakshuka that I've seen out there. The sort of tomatillo and herbaceous uh, base sauce. So she can play around with it, but essentially it's just a sauce that yeah. holds eggs, right? So you can kind of have fun with it, build a build a sauce that isn't tomato based, and poach your eggs in it, but. Yes, that is uh, really easy and no frills. I also love that. That looks fancy. <laughs> yeah. I also love that. I didn't realize that shakshuka in Arabic meant a mixture. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, that's the thing about Arab cuisine. It's so literal. It's crazy. Like, it's either the main ingredient or the methodology um, that is used to prepare. It's not very sexy at all. It sounds sexier in Arabic than, <laughs> than what it actually translates to. Um, I want you to talk about one other recipe before we go into the break, which is Uh this wheat berry fava salad, which Mm -hmm. (laughs) has a rich, you have a rich history with this. Yeah, that, that salad's dedicated to my aunt, Emily. Um, Who helped write the book. She helped write the book. Yeah, this was, 
a labor of love and uh, also just like a way for me to connect with family. And uh, my aunt was super integral to my coming of age uh, as an organizer and as a chef. Uh, she, I, she's known me since I was six. <laughs> so she knows... Uh, you know, she knows all those stories that I talk about in the introduction of wanting to hold my hand and be independent. Um, so I knew she'd be the perfect co-writer. Um, but I came to her as, uh, you know, really depressed 19-year-old that really didn't know where I wanted to be in my life. And I was at the lowest moment in my life. And she and my uncle took me in. And they nursed me back to health like a little... <laughs> bird with my wing uh, that needed to be mended. And uh, the way that they did that was through two things. Uh, one, uh, the California redwoods, uh, nice. and two, vegetables and cooking. And my aunt, uh, Truth, uh, she, she couldn't be further away than sort of the lineage of my, my uncle's side of the family, which is my mom's brother. Uh, she grew up on a farm in Humboldt. <laughs> uh, she's a white Jewish American and uh, a farm girl at heart and uh, she would take these vegetables and make amazing things with them so it's really where I learned how to cook with vegetables and uh, she was an expert salad maker and um, just was really really wanted to make sure I was connected to my roots so that was the first time I really explored Arab food, ironically, was living with her and my uncle as a 19-year-old, as, you know, uh, going back to these foods that I took for granted growing up and figuring out how I can merge these sort of California ingredients with traditional Arab flavors. So I owe a lot to her for really helping me expand my repertoire of cooking with vegetables. I also really need somebody who's going to encourage me to go through the work of making favas, <laughs> right? You need somebody there being like, all right, let's It's what I used things. to do to punish let's my go. cooks. <laughs> You're not We're, working fast enough. Here's a box of favas. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. We're talking with Rima Seal about her new cookbook, Arabia, and her restaurants in the Bay Area. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Reem Seal about her beautiful cookbook, which I'm holding in my hand here, Arabia, Recipes from the Life 
of an Arab in diaspora. And we're going to get to a call here. Jonas from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Uh, my name's Jonas Cabrera. I think you worked with my girl Marisol before. Oh, yeah. Life. Thanks for calling in. <laughs> yeah, man. I just wanted to say I really appreciate, or I really dug your show, Containers. And I really appreciate Reem talking about the connection between the different diasporas and the cuisine and comales and tortillas and all that. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, I, I used to live by 26 by the Reams right there. And unfortunately, I never I never got a chance to, to go because our schedules never worked out. But, um, you know, I see a lot of these new parklets and restaurants popping up and, and they become kind of they quickly become the newest trend and they get populated by a very specific class of people. And I'm somebody in the community looking in who doesn't necessarily have the same kind of wealth. They might seem inaccessible or unapproachable. And I worked in the restaurant industry, so I know that, like, food profit margins are very low. So I'm wondering, how do we make these spaces accessible and affordable for people in the community while still being able to succeed, you know? That is a great question. (laughs) Um, It is a question that I've explored from the beginning when I got into this industry. I think that, um, you know, it's ironic that I became a restaurant owner when I used to organize workers to delegate to the boss. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think for uh, for me as uh, an organizer, uh, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur that's really trying to build a business, a different model um, for business that uh, whose core tenants are in social justice, um, we make very intentional decisions about the space that we're creating. So um, one of those things is really creating a menu that uh, can feed any anybody from any socioeconomic background. Um, I think it's really important that we have a variety on our menu. Um, but the reality is that and I said this, I, I actually, when I moved, when Reams moved into the mission, I actually went and reached out to all of uh, the community organizations there to see, you know, what is the added value that we can bring to the community, right? I may not necessarily be able to to charge uh, um, all of my food at a cheaper price point, but I'm providing really good jobs, we'll hire locally, what are some of the other things we can do? Because those with more disposable income can subsidize us to be able to give back to the community in other ways, right? Um, so I'm always thinking about sort of how how do we set up our business that, you know, the Googles can afford catering at this price point, and that allows us to provide a discount to the nonprofits who want catering from us. When the pandemic hit, we became a lot more explicit about that. <laughs> And I think that was good. You know, I think that that really, um, we put our money where our mouth is. We, um, But it's all about intentionality. I mean, when you walk into Reams, I, d- I don't know if you've walked by it, but all of our um, signage is in English, Arabic, and Spanish. Um, a lot of our staff is bilingual, um, front of house especially, so that we make sure that um, we really make ourselves as accessible as we can culturally, um, to the neighborhood that's living there, which is a primarily Latinx neighborhood. Um, you know, little things like that that go a long way. Um, but I, th- I think that when you really invest in the people who work in, um, work in your space and they reflect the communities around that, 
even when you have the people who are reading the food and wine and coming to Reims from the outside, you also have people from the neighborhood. And that forces them to interact, right? We don't want to be a gentrifying space where people just come in from the inside, from the outside, um, and don't interact with the neighborhoods that they're in. So um, we really try to be that conduit. Um, but that said, it's definitely not easy. Um, we pay our workers really well. Um, and, you know, Reams is in the process of transitioning into a worker-owned space as well. So that is going to yet again change the dynamic. Um, yeah, but it, it is it is a very, very hard question because gentrification is a force that is so much bigger. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I talk about that. I mean, I you know, it's just I think that like like uh, you quoted Alexis, I didn't open a rest. I didn't open Reams to have a restaurant. <laughs> um, the restaurant is a tool. It's one of many tools in the toolkit. This cookbook is another tool. So. Hopefully there will be other, other conduits or ways in which um, we can build resilient community. Okay. I want to thank you so much for, uh, for that question, and thanks for listening, too. We really appreciate it. Um, I, I, I want to just go one more step down this uh, line, Reem, which is you, know, you see this with a lot of people here in the Bay Area, particularly radical people, people who left politics. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of tension between building a business model that makes sure, you know, the vendors get paid really well and workers get paid really well and, you know, they're able to main maintain these spaces. But, you know, you see it in all kinds of creative fields where, like, you know, you have these, like, anti-capitalist ceramicists, but the coffee mugs are $90, you know, and you say, like, <laughs> yeah. what, do you, what do we do with this, right? Yeah. Because, you know, it, so you're, one of your answers, at least, is the worker-owned space. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that is the model kind of ours Mendy, right? So it's a little yes. bit of a return to, to your roots in the industry. Yeah, yeah. I always had a vision for Reams to be worker owned. Um, the uh, the sort of the the inspiration behind Reams is really about growing something with the people rather than um, just building it and then they will come, which is the traditional model, right? For restaurants, like I have a product, you're gonna come and get it, and Reams has always been about sort of building it side by side with the community, and I think that. In the pandemic, I realized part of that community is really building it with the workers. We've always had a democratic culture at Reams, but I think I had this idea that I was going to build this thing that, that I was going to then hand over to the employees at some point in time. Mm. And then there was this come to Jesus moment for a lot of people in the industry, which is this industry is not going to sustain itself if we don't drastically changed the inner workings of it. And mm -hmm. we were leaving out the very people who were impacted <laughs> by the industry out of that conversation. It was all the restaurateurs saying, how are we going to make this a more racially equitable industry and all of these things? And I'm like, wait, we should be asking the employees themselves. They are the closest to the solution because they're the closest to the problem. But they're not going to want to get involved with that because they don't have a stake in it. And that was the aha moment. If you give people a stake in the outcomes of their destiny, they're going to be so much more committed. Uh, and that was a turnaround for us. And so we started engaging our workers um, around the beginning of the pandemic and what could it look like for them to have more governance over Reams? Because I couldn't. As a small business owner, you can't make all the decisions on your own. It's just not sustainable and it 
doesn't lead to always the best decisions. 12, like I say, 12 hearts and minds sometimes are better than just one or two. So um, we built an apprenticeship program where we learned side by side uh, what a worker co-op is and what it could look like to be small business owners. And the idea is that we're building leadership so that our food space is not just an organizing tool for the community, it's an organizing tool for um, the workers. And yeah, we had 12 people graduate from that program and now we're on sort of a path to figuring out they will be the founders of um, a worker-owned space at Reams. Let's bring in Karen from San Francisco. Welcome, Karen. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to let Reem know um, your goal and your vision of building a community was very much realized in our neighborhood during the pandemic. Um, We did a lot of Reem's at home meals, and we would do group orders and pick them up and drop them off with each other in the neighborhood, and we've really missed it. so while I'm glad that the restaurant is open full time, we miss all having the same <laughs> the meal, meal in our own spaces Aww. together. So thank you thank for that. You. Was that huge. was a very special time in our history. <laughs> yeah, we enjoyed it. And I just got my copy of your cookbook and I'm looking forward to cooking all weekend. Thank you so much. That's Reams beautiful. at home. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Karen. I want to bring in Lisa from San Carlos to talk about a particular food that I know is is close to your heart as well. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Hi there. Thanks so much. This is a a great topic, way beyond cooking, and I'm so inspired about the whole worker-owned process and all that stuff. As a a former restaurant worker and um, union activist, it was like, wow, so great to hear this. But anyway, and I didn't even know about that. But um, when I first moved here 25 years ago, um, I was had this little newborn baby, and we had a babysitter named Nadia who was from Lebanon, and um, she would cook things for me because she knew I loved eating. And one day she said, "Lisa, we are going to make mamoul," and that's right. That's right. every time I went to her house, it was you sit down with a plate of lentils and rice, and you need to eat this, Lisa. But um, <laughs> Um, but she said, we're going to make mamoul. And I said, okay, tell me what that is. And she said, it's a special cookie with um, semolina and rose water and nuts. And it takes, it requires this beautiful wooden press to mm-hmm. create the cookie. And it was many, many steps making this cookie. Um, I don't know, well, if that was her family recipe or if it is always many steps. But um, <laughs> she sat there with this newborn baby in the kitchen and rolled those balls and pressed them into the into the mold and baked them and sprinkled it's magical, right? On the yeah. Top. Yeah. Oh my God, it was so fantastic. You and know, she's since moved back to Lebanon, and I've lost touch with her, and I think of her all the time when I make these cookies. So that's awesome that you're still making them. Yeah, you know, I say that like a lot of Arab foods are very you know, they have many steps because they're so communal, <laughs> right? It's not yeah, just one person yeah. doing it. And that's like the beauty of it. And uh, that was one of my best memories of slapping the mold on the on the table and uh, yeah. watching the cookie come out. So uh, there is in the cookbook, we do have a recipe for mamoul med, which is a special kind of mamoul, which is more like a cookie bar. Um, it's uh-huh. made in the tray with the layer and we do it with a espresso date, 
filling. And well, it, so can I still yeah. use the configure it to use the the press? Probably you can. Yeah, you can make you can make the dough and you can make the the fillings and you can use the press. Yeah. Thank oh, you so much. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. A, Thank you so much. Beautiful memory, uh, Lisa. And yeah, I also just wanted to say, Reem, this recipe in the book shows up as associated with your mother. <laughs> I knew we were gonna go to my mama. Yeah, gotta end with some. Yeah, some sweet. End with mom. Yes, mama. This one goes out to the mamas who are working and going to school and taking care of kids and living that that American dream, that so-called American <laughs> dream. Um, my mom was just really, uh, you know, one of the things that was really important to her is to make sure that our culture was alive in the home. And while she had so many obligations to just help the family stay afloat, she really stayed committed to that. Um, and she didn't always you know, follow the traditional way of making Arab foods. <laughs> I would call them more like 21st century. <laughs> she was a chemist after all. She, she was, was a chemist chem after all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I always thought that she was making that form of marmol as sort of the quick and easy way, but then realized that actually it is a delicacy that is enjoyed in <laughs> Lebanon. Um, but yeah, she... She was really, really masterful at creating really delicious things in, in, in a single pot sometimes. That pressure cooker was always going on. <laughs> you know, things that have to take traditionally three or four hours, she can make it in a jiffy. And um, I really feel like a lot of my intuitive cooking comes from her. And being able to troubleshoot when something goes wrong uh, really comes from her. You also relate this story in the book that when there were these really troubling and bad depictions of Arabs in your school, your mom decided she was going to bring in these sweets and show people yes. like real uh, Arab food, too, uh, yes. which shows a, a particular kind of sophistication about the way of uh, attacking these stereotypes. Gastro diplomacy. <laughs> Although I say my mom wasn't a diplomat. She's like she's more an advocate. You know, she was yeah. like. Here, <laughs> see how we are, and we're gonna tell it to you like it is. But uh, she always won, uh, won the hearts and uh, bellies of my schoolmates, and at least for a day, I was cool. Yeah. Um, last thing, Reem. You know, we, you've been on quite a trajectory here. You have these very successful restaurants. You've gotten attention from places like KQED as well as many other media outlets. And there's a moment in the book where you say. You know, I, I couldn't shake the feeling, I'm quoting now, I couldn't shake the feeling that this attention had been staged by media hungry for a rags-to-riches story to prove that even a brown girl like me could make it in the food world. And as you sit here, your book came out this week, mm -hmm. the attention is surging in. Like, how are you girding yourself for this? Like, what are, How are you preparing <sighs> yourself for what's, for what's coming? You, any, you got any tips? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I think this time around, I mean, part of the impetus for writing this book um, at the time that I decided I wanted to write this book was I felt like my narrative and my story was being taken away from me. It's, you know, in the headlines, it was like, this girl's meteoric rise to success. And it's like, wait, actually, I've been hustling <laughs> these last 12 years and you don't know me. And like, I just really felt like 
I was, the narrative was getting away from me, and I really felt like I had a story that I really wanted to share, but I was scared to share um, because I had that imposter syndrome. And um, I think that in writing this book, I really, it really built my uh, confidence in myself and this, I don't know how to explain it, but just like knowing this groundedness, I guess that's the word for it, mm. that uh, whenever I get swept away with all of that to come back to why I wrote this book, which is that this narrative is important, my story is important, my voice is important, and yes, I express it through food, um, I express it through writing, um, but that uh, it needs, I need to feel true to myself anytime that um, I get asked to express that narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my guiding light in all of this. I feel tremendously blessed to have a platform. I feel like other Arab chefs uh, are coming up now have will have a much easier time than when I did. You know, mm -hmm. there are very few of us who are leading with our Arab identities. And I chose to double down on myself mm -hmm. and to not be scared to say that I was Palestinian or Syrian or that my politics are rooted in social justice. And hopefully um, this platform will lead to, to more people being true to themselves and to doubling down on themselves. So that is the thing that sort of helps me stay grounded yeah. in all of this. And you can feel your ancestral lineage too all throughout this book. It's really yeah, beautiful. Yeah, my grandma, my mom, yeah. my dad, all of them are characters auntie, in this book. Yeah. My auntie, all of them. Yeah, yeah, they all had a role to play. To end with bread, a listener writes, did you know the Arabic word for bread? Aish means life. I may be saying that incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Aish mm -hmm. bread in Egyptian Arabic is called Aish, which literally means life rather than mm -hmm. kobs, the other the word that other Arab speakers use. The word reflects the centrality of bread here. Thank you so much for joining us, Reem Asil, new cookbook, Arabia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susie Britton, Dan Zoll, Grace Wan, Caroline Smith, Asul Dahlstrom, Ekman, and Cesar Saldana. Judy Campbell's lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Executive editor Ethan Tobin, Lindsay. Chief content officer Holly Kernan. Special thanks to WIOD in South Florida. Stay tuned for more ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.